two years now, maybe two and a half years, I don't know. This is going to be our 81st sermon in this series. Um, 81 sermons. I don't, I don't think I've, uh, I've taught through some books and taken my time, but I don't know if I've taught 80, I don't think it took 81 sermons to get through Mark. Uh, but anyway, so 81 sermons in this series. Last week we looked at how Paul entered Athens and became angry uh, at the uh, city's rampant idolatry. The Athenians were just absolutely stooped in, in uh, incredible idolatry at a level that I don't know if another city has ever seen. And when he came in, he was very angered by that, that he was very frustrated that all of that commitment, devotion, and worship was going down to metal and stone and, and all of these different idols that had been made by human hands, and so he was very angry at that, very zealous for God's glory, but he did not do what I tend to do when you get pretty zealous about God's glory and you get on these Facebook rants and these things, and he actually took his energy and, and his anger and formed, put it into energy into preaching the gospel at the local synagogues, uh, at the mall or the agora, at the painted stoa, which was where the local philosophers hung out so he was very intentional his anger was a righteous anger but he took it and put it into energy into proclaiming the gospel because he truly believed only the gospel could set free those who were captive to idolatry any Athenian who was worshiping Zeus could certainly be set free from that idolatry and worship the living God through Jesus Christ and so he preached the gospel some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, uh, some of these guys hung out at the painted Stoa, like I said, was the little local Starbucks where the philosophers hung out and debated and conversed and poured forth their things and raised up their little philosophical disciples. And some of these guys interacted with Paul. They criticized him and critiqued his message and thought he was basically stupid. But they chose to, I think after a while of listening to him, he, you know, Paul was very good at reasoning from the scripture and became somewhat intrigued by his preaching and brought him before the Areopagus, which was the high court of the city. Uh, the philosophers and the Areopagites, or judges, desired to hear Paul's message in greater detail. They figured, well, we'll bring him before the high magistrates of the city and we'll, we'll listen to him flesh out and teach his doctrine in greater depth. And, and there might be a strong possibility that we can take his deity and his beliefs and integrate them into our system of religion. And so this wasn't a, a trial, if you will. It wasn't like what, you know, Peter and uh, John experienced back at the Sanhedrin in, in Jerusalem where they were actually like put on a trial or Paul's trial later where it was kind of a life or death kind of thing. This was more like a, uh, an evaluation, if you will, they wanted to hear what he had to say, and they were interested in maybe taking some of his beliefs and tying them to their beliefs, which was very common then. You know, the Athenians, the Greeks, didn't start out with 150-plus gods. You know, they probably started out with a couple, and then they just kept adding and creating. And, oh, these guys over here have these gods, and they bring it in, and we interview them. And, and so it just kind of was this growing religion. Pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. So it wasn't a trial. It was an eval. And Paul obliged them. He went to the Areopagus with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and obliged them. He, I think, looked at it as an, an incredible opportunity to proclaim the gospel for the highest leadership in the community, uh, which would be like going before our Senate or our Supreme Court would probably be a better example to go proclaim the gospel there. And so Paul was very bold. We've learned that, right, after studying him for months and months and months and months, studying his writings and his maneuvers and movings, he, he was just incredibly bold. And so he went to the Areopagus, he obliged them, and that's pretty much where we left off. We didn't get into his sermon, but we're going to today. So you can take your Bibles and turn over to Acts 17. We're going to begin at 22. Acts 17, verse 22 is where we'll pick up. One more time, Acts 17, verse 22. I think we left off at 21 last week. Let me pray one more time before we get to work. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth right now, Lord. Open our hearts and minds to this sermon that Paul preached that Luke has very graciously uh, penned for us, recorded for us, led by the Holy Spirit, that he put these words down 
that they had a massive impact on those that were listening nearly 2,000 years ago. I pray that, that this sermon that we're going to begin to study in the coming weeks would have a massive impact on us, that you would take the truth of it and apply it directly to our hearts, that you would call some to salvation for the first time, and that you would call those who are saved to sanctification, to being conformed to the image of Christ, that you would transform us and conform us to him and uh, into his likeness. Through the power of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, may we be, as we heard earlier, uh, doers of the word, not mere hearers, that we might be deceived if we only hear and never do. Uh, the faith is all about, um, it is all about believing, but it is also the next thing that comes is doing. And so true faith is always believing and always doing. They go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. And so may we uh, learn that today in a clearer sense and apply these truths to our hearts and live them out. And so we depend on you, Jesus. We will learn nothing and do nothing without your move in our hearts. And uh, we, we need you to perform that uh, miracle today of transformation and uh, leading us. And so be glorified here today, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to pick up at 22. Are you there? If you're there, just go ahead and say I'm there. Cool. 22, so Paul says, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, here's how his, he greets this group. I have no idea how many judges or magistrates were there. I don't know if it was 12, 15, 24, 36, 54, I, I don't know, 10, 2, 3, who knows. But he stands in their midst and he says this, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is how he opens his sermon. What an interesting thing to open a sermon with. Uh, if I was a guest speaker at some church, that, wouldn't that just throw people off? Now, Pastor Phil's here from RHC to preach here, you know, and, and, and the first thing I would say is, I can just perceive that you're all very religious. <laughs> I would, if I were in the audience, I would immediately think, oh, no, worries. where's he going with this? I'd be like, why did you guys have him become a guest speaker? So Paul's opening line is, is unique, and it really set the stage for where he was about to go and what he was about to say. Uh, the first thing that he does here that we can see so clearly is that he acknowledges the religiosity of the community and of these leaders. He said, in every way, I love that. He says, in every way you are very religious. He doesn't say, I can tell you're kind of religious. I can tell that in some ways you're a bit religious. He says, in every way, I can see that you are very religious. This was Paul's evaluation of the people of Athens. He perceived that they had applied religion to every aspect of life, literally, every aspect of life. And this is exactly what they had done. They had a God for fertility, a God for the sun, a God for the moon, a God for the weather, a God for illness, a God for the sea, a God for love, and a God for hunting, and, and God for victory. And, you know, they literally had taken their lives and probably sat down and said, let's evaluate what a human life looks like. You've got breathing, you've got sleeping, you've got anger, you've got all these different things that we experience. You've got love, you've got sexual intimacy, you've got all, you've got fertility and child rearing and bearing and all that stuff. Let's create or come up with a God for every one of those aspects of our lives. This is literally what they did. They had a God for everything. If they'd had lollipops back then there, they would have had the lollipop God. I mean, they just had one over everything. They felt the need to have a God over every area department of their existence and Paul immediately picks up on this. He pointed this out. Now, this is really interesting because, you know, at times we see when Paul preaches, he, he can be pretty hard and, and, and very straightforward and very black and white. And, and the way that he actually says this, when he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, there isn't a, a hint of malice or anger or, you know, he, he's not making fun of them. He's not being sarcastic uh, or any of that. And, and, I, and I would suspect that if I were in his shoes, I, I would probably have some sort of Conan O'Brien sarcastic edge to my 
perception. And when I begin to make that, and I can just see that you are sober. Wow, you guys really don't get it. And that is not at all what he does here. He, he begins to lead into the gospel and to address them in a very respectful way. He didn't bash them in what he said here. There was no ridicule, malice, or any of those things. He wasn't denouncing them here for being religious. You know, he was just, he was being respectful. He was being what we would call gracious. Even though he knew that their religion was completely misguided, completely offensive to God, he was still respectful. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are highly religious. Respectfully, he addresses these people. You know, you kind of you get the sense that he's kind of submitting, in a sense, to the authority that's around him. Because these people are in an authority position. He's nothing. He's a traveling minister. He's a traveling evangelist. So it's very interesting the way that he, he did this. Now, I'm going to go on a bit of a diatribe here for a moment. Because um, I'm not nearly as gracious as Paul, but, and that's no excuse. But uh, I want to just talk about this subject of religion for a moment. And uh, I want to point out the, the good and bad of it. Um, religion by definition, because that's what he says, right? I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's pointing to the religion. He's pointing to religion. Religion by definition uh, is the service and worship of God. An institutionalized system of religious beliefs and practices. Anyone who would say that Christianity is not a religion doesn't understand what Christianity is or what a religion is. But, you know, knowing Jesus is a relationship, not religion. No, it's both. Religion is an organized way to live out faith and practice, is what it is. And, and, and that means that there's good and there's bad. But we, we should not think to ourselves whenever we hear that word that, you know, that it immediately comes with all this negative connotation. It's a bad thing. It's an evil thing. It's a wicked thing. Religion, by definition, can be a good thing, but some in the church today take a pretty hard stance against any and all forms of religion. Uh, they just think it's bad, and, and they think that because of grace, you know, because of God's grace, there's no reason to be religious. There's no call for religion. They say that religion is incompatible with our faith. And these are the kinds of things that people say. But this is not at all what the Bible actually teaches. The Bible says that there is right religion and there is wrong religion. Right religion is, is done out of response to our justification or being made right with God by faith. You think of Abraham who was counted as righteous before God. How? Because he obeyed and and did these things absolutely because he had faith and he obeyed. Not because of what he actually did. Not because of his own works. But because he believed and then obeyed. But ultimately it's because he believed. He was justified by faith. And faith alone is how Abraham was justified. And so right religion happens when we are simply responding to the fact that we're justified. We're made right with God. Then we begin to move through religion or do religion by serving God a certain way and doing these sorts of things. We serve and worship God or engage in religion, if you will, because God first served us in salvation. We do what we do religiously. If you read the Bible every day, you're religious about how you read the Bible. If you're a, a, a constant tither, you're religious about how you give. You know, religion can also mean set patterns of obedience and discipline patterns. And so... But technically, this is what it is. We do what we do religiously because of what God did for us. This is the beginning point of right religion. It is a response to what's been done. It's a response to what has been accomplished. It's not the other way around. Wrong religion is the opposite. It is doing things for God or some sort of God or gods and others, not because you're saved and justified. Not because of what Christ has done for you, but actually because you're trying to cause God to save you through your good deeds. You're trying to bring something about, some, some effect or change by God because of what you're doing. You want to gain, 
you know, through religion and going through these motions and doing these things and liturgy and whatever, daily practice, you're trying to get God's attention so that he'll save you and show mercy and what have you. And so wrong religion can basically be put as trying to earn salvation, which the Bible makes clear that we cannot do. Wrong religion is trying to worship and serve God apart from the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church and half-brother of Jesus, pointed to right religion in James 1, which we heard just a few moments ago. Prior to this, James described how, in this text, prior to this part, this section on right religion, he had described how testing can lead to perseverance and how perseverance can strengthen and broaden and grow our faith. Now, James addressed his letter to saved people. Uh, when you read the epistles, think of them being written to the church and to the elect to save people. They're not written to non-believers. They're not written to people that are on the fence or any of that. They are written to Christians in churches. And that's an, a, a context that sets forth the meaning of the text always. These things aren't just universally written. They're written to. If I wrote a letter to Lauren, I would be writing to another Christian. Or vice versa. And so that's exactly what it is. So James basically is writing to Christians. And he, he talks about how, you know, our faith is strengthened in these sorts of things through, through perseverance and through struggle and all these things. And so that's the context of it. Now in verse 27 of chapter 1, he said, here is what right religion looks like. Amongst, and I would be paraphrasing, but this is essentially what right religion looks like amongst those who have been justified by God. Remember, he's writing to Christians. These are people who have already been justified. Verse 27, he says, here's what it looks like. Here is how Christians can please and serve God in religion. Verse 27, we heard it. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. Here's how you do it, justified believers, Christians, to visit orphans, visit widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So right religion for Christians has to do with showing compassion uh, for heartbroken to heartbroken and destitute people, right? Being merciful. Come to me, all ye who are weary. Christ modeled this compassion to people who were broken and suffering. And, and right religion for us as saved people would be to show mercy and compassion towards others. It would also be for Christians... Uh, Right religion for Christians also has to do with maintaining personal holiness, which religion can serve a wonderful purpose in, that if we have disciplines and things built into our lives and patterns that we might avoid the world and these temptations and these sorts of things. If we cling to our, you know, we're justified, but if we cling to our religion and, and go through these motions and read scripture and pray and pray certain things and these things, it can be a wonderful thing. Now, I recently exhorted a, a believer, another believer. This is probably a month ago or so. I got into this conversation with this believer and going back and forth on this subject, and not this subject, but on another subject. And, and I pretty much exhorted this believer just to, just, to, just to stop and to obey the scripture, obey the law of God, obey what God commands, obey God's precepts, because this person was arguing against that. And I, I'm always baffled and bewildered by how Christians argue against the truth. I'm not talking about, you know, scientists or these guys out in the world, or your neighbor who doesn't believe. I'm talking about Christians. You know, you, you have a subject, and you begin to apply the word of God to it, and then for whatever reason, God's people, and it's, it's really a miracle in and of itself, begin to challenge the truth, deny it, and then begin to try to lead other believers away from it. It's a phenomenon I, I can't wrap my mind around. The truth can be so plain, black and white, it says it, and yet, well... Now, no, no, not, not well, it says what it says. And that's affirmed in a lot of other passages. And so I, I'm having this conversation with this person, and I'm exhorting this believer to obey the scriptures, and she turned around and called me a Pharisee. And she said, don't you put religion on me. And I thought, who taught this young woman that obeying God is pharisaical. 
And then she proceeded to expound on the subject of grace, paragraph after paragraph. Yes, I made the mortal mistake of doing this on Facebook. But she began to write, you know, you're being pharisaical by exhorting me to obey the word, and that's religion, and you're a Pharisee, and then bam, she, you know, she says grace, and the next thing you know, she's, you know, doing a marathon on the subject and trying to teach me about grace. And I was just, I just thought, what, what church do you attend? Where are you learning these things? What possesses you to think that grace and obedience are in compatible. I, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. Now, I'll just tell you right now, the church is filled with people like this. They're everywhere. There might be some in this room today. They're all over the place. And I told her, I said, you know, in love, I said, why don't you read the book of Jude? It's one page. You know, Jude has to do with, uh, Jude is, is an amazing author led by the Holy Spirit, and he writes to, to protect and to warn Christians about false teachers who perverted God's grace by basically saying that disobedience and lawlessness are okay. That's what the letter's about. So why don't you, young lady, and not being mean or sarcastic or anything, why don't you stop and read Jude, and this is the context, and read that and, and, and then ask God, okay, wait a minute, are obedience and grace compatible? And what is the warning in this text? And I said, if you want to take it further, you could read a fantastic book on the subject called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a fantastic book on what it means to be a Christian, obedience and these things. And if you want to take it even further and read something that's a little weightier, then you could read Antinomianism by Mark Jones. And, and how does she respond to this encouragement? She says, I'll read those as long as you read my Brennan Manning books on grace. I've, I've read them. I've read the Ragamuffin Gospel. I've read Furious Longing. I've read these books. There's nothing inherently wrong with them. He's a bit of a mystic, but it's a grace. these are grace-focused books. Grace is wonderful. You know, grace is, is key, right? You're saved by grace through faith. We get that. It's highly important. But somehow I don't think Brendan Manning was attempting to alleviate obedience or trying to get rid of it or jettison these things that are highly important. But I said, you know, I've read some of those books, but if, if that's the way you want to go about it, then, you know, we can trade and, and I'll read yours and, and give you my input and, and then you can read these two or three books that I have and, and we can go on there. And, and then again, the question always, it just comes down to this. Why, why do Christians, not all but many, why do they think that grace and obedience are incompatible why do they think that grace completely neutralizes the law of God for believers like as if because we're saved by grace the law has no purpose in our life because now we're in Christ the law means nothing to us we don't even have to pay attention to the Ten Commandments or anything none of those things are important because we're saved by grace and Jesus has done something for us and and now we don't have to worry or concern ourselves with the law how do they arrive at these conclusions. I suspect people don't understand, Christians don't understand one of the many, and there's many paradoxes in the Christian faith, but one of them is, is this in particular, that, that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are rescued from the penalty of law, our disobedience of it, and that by grace through faith in Christ, again, we are empowered to obey the law. You're saved from the penalty of the law so that you can obey it, because the only way to please God is to obey his law. You can't please God by believing in Jesus and jettison the law. Believing in Jesus, now how am I supposed to live? Well, I'll follow his example. What do you think he did? Perfect obedience to the law, and I'm so thankful for that. And here's what's wonderful about this. We've been saved from the penalty so that we can obey, and God knows that we'll disobey at times. He knows we trip up. He does not expect perfect obedience from us. That's what Christ achieved, and yet he still desires and expects obedience. He still does. So the law has a purpose for us. There literally is no living for God apart from obedience to his law or apart from Christ who enables us to obey it. Obedience is a necessary part of our salvation. Obedience follows salvation. Obedience is a sign of our salvation. Obedience is the fruit of salvation. Obedience to what? The law of God. 
And I would say in more particular, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The first four are about how to be in right relationship with God and to worship him. The last six, God gave us more about us. How to love and honor your neighbor, your family member, or whoever. How to care for other believers. It's imperative that we understand these things. It's imperative that we get this. Now, never think to yourself that as a Christian, you are not required to obey God's commands or that it is pharisaical to do so. Don't think like this young lady did. Don't let somebody tell you that grace, 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 don't worry about the law at all. It has no purpose. You never have to obey it. It doesn't have any purpose in your life. There's no first, second, or third purpose in your life. Whatever. Don't let people tell you these things. It is necessary. And we are so thankful for God's grace, which enables and empowers us to, to obey it is a lie to say or to tell others that, oh, you're, you're pursuing personal piety and holiness by trying to obey God's law. You're being pharisaical or you're being religious. This is a lie. As Christians, it should be our great desire and joy to obey God's commands. You know, before Jesus you could attempt to obey God's commands and never do it right. But because of Jesus, you can actually do it with the right heart, right attitude, and right motives. And that is what pleases God. Apart from Jesus, you can't do any of those things right. You're trying to get something from him. You're trying to be religious for the sake of religion. You're trying to earn. That, that's not pleasing to God. In fact, that further condemns us. But through Christ, we can actually have right heart, right attitude, right disposition, and right motives in obeying God. Why? Christ loves me, saved me. I am now going to respond. I respond with love back to Christ. And what is it that Christ commands me to do? What is it that the word exhorts me to do? To obey Christ himself said, that's how the world will know you belong to me. By your love for one another, by how you obey. Read John 15. There is no life, understand this, there is no life in God apart from obeying his law. You were saved so you could. You weren't saved so you would never have to. You cannot please God apart from his law. His law represents his character. And how, how on earth would God give us grace so that we could live in an opposite way to his character? What would it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? To be a law-abiding citizen. Christ obeyed the law. It was his goal to do so. So don't let anyone say you're a Pharisee for doing these things. Don't let anyone say you're being religious. Think of what the psalmist said. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. You know, this is a saved and justified person here that wrote this. He believed in the coming Messiah. This psalmist did. And because of that, he wrote, it is, it is my sheer delight. It is my joy to obey your commands. See, God's commands for the believer aren't burdensome. They're not cumbersome. We don't look at them and say, ugh. We look at them and then we look in the mirror and say, ugh. Didn't love my neighbor very well today. And that's another thing. The law serves as a guidepost for believers. That would be maybe the third purpose of it in our lives. You know, how else do we know to live for God and do we know we're off track? We look at the law. And Christ says, there's where you're off. We make these adjustments. Never allow anyone to discourage you from obeying God, believers or non-believers, free gracers, they're out there, or no gracers, that'd be non-believers. Obedience to God is right religion. Okay? There are pastors and, and Christians out there that, that do not understand the difference between justification and sanctification. You know, they say we are justified by faith alone, and that is absolutely correct. But they also say that we are sanctified or conformed to the image of Christ by faith alone. This is completely incorrect. We are not conformed to the image of Christ by merely believing. We actually have to take action. We have to read our Bibles. We have to pray. We have to engage in the fellowship. We have to engage in all the means of grace. We have to do as Jesus did. We have to follow his commands. When we do that, God supernaturally conforms us to Christ's image. 
You're not going to be made and conform to the image of Christ by, you know, conform to the image of the sun by twirling your thumbs. It doesn't happen. You don't read your Bible, you're not being conformed to the image of Christ. You're not a prayer person, you're not being conformed. You don't come to church very often, you're not being conformed. Where the word of God is preached, where grace is exalted and we're encouraged to, to, to work at our lives. How do these free gracers deal with the verses that say, work out your salvation in fear and trembling? How do they deal with texts that say, make sure your election is, is true? And these things happen as we engage in the means of grace. You ever meet a timid Christian who's very uncertain of his own faith or her faith and is always going back and forth, I'm not sure about the love of God and all that? Find out what disciplines they have in their life because if they don't read and don't study and don't attend church, why on earth would they have any assurance of faith? If their faith isn't being built up and strengthened, how on earth are they going to have an assurance of faith? When you come here and hear the, the gospel proclaimed, God is, is, is changing you and strengthening you and building you up and conforming you to the image of Christ. Your own obedience to God's commands actually works. Your own effort, never in saving, not in justification, but in sanctification, your own effort counts for something. And guess what? This is going to sound crazy. Those who put in great effort are more greatly conformed to the image of Christ. That's a fact. It doesn't happen by osmosis. You have to engage. God has provided tools to make us like Jesus. And we actually need to get into this thing and read it and study it and, and dine on it and eat it and consume it and take it in. Imperative that we understand this. How do these guys deal with those passages that, that talk and, and exhort us to action, never to be justified, but in the process of sanctification? How do they deal with it? I like what uh, Carson, D.A. Carson wrote. He said, we do not drift toward holiness apart from grace-driven effort. We don't gravitate toward godliness, but godlessness. Okay, what D.A. Carson is saying is if you do nothing, you will be nothing. In fact, you will regress. The author of Hebrews Warned about this, warned about backsliding and regression in chapter 10 of that marvelous book, which is my wife's favorite book in the Bible. It really is the entire Bible in one book. Creation, the preeminence of Christ, salvation, all these things. I mean, if you were stuck on a desert island, you had no other book of the Bible, that'd be the one to have because it covers it all. It's an amazing book. But this author that, that penned this, some think it's Paul, Barnabas, others, I don't know, he said this of those and warned those who backslide and do nothing. He said in 1029, he said, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned, pardon me, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? What he's talking about here is those who have been enlightened in a sense or have heard the gospel over and over and over, who know the truth in a sense, but walk away from it, how much more punishment do they deserve than maybe that which has never heard it? Pretty serious warning here. Now, and where there's not much debate on it, well, believers can't lose their salvation and all that. I understand that completely. Maybe this passage doesn't have anything to do with removing one's salvation or them ever losing it. Maybe it has to do with just the disciplinary hand of God. It is a fearful and dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a warning here to us church folks who come to church. We forsake the church. We never come back. Or we take months and months off. We don't read our Bible and all that. This warning is for us. You have heard the truth. How much more will God judge you and punish you because you've heard it and not acted upon it? Or you have forsaken it. Serious warning here. Those who denounce post-salvation effort are wrong and dangerous they have rejected those passages that I talked about, Philippians 2.12, 2 Peter 1.9, you know, being more diligent to conf uh, confirm your calling and these sorts of things. We need to not be, as a church, as a body of believers, not confused on this matter. It is so highly important that we do not see all religion is bad, that there is biblical religion, 
and that we understand that we have a responsibility as saved, justified believers to put in hard work, to study, to read, to serve, to obey, to exhort, admonish, encourage, celebrate communion, baptism, these sorts of things, to give. God uses all of those things to make us like Jesus. He uses the very things that Jesus engaged in to make us like him. We actually become like Jesus when we obey and do as God has commanded. So are we all clear on the matter here that, you know, yes, you're saved by grace, but that doesn't mean, woohoo, I got to do nothing. There is massive confusion about this in the church today, just so you know. And that's why I'm warning us. You have been called and empowered to obey and to do it to the glory of God, and God's grace is there when you stumble, when you fail, when you disobey. But one act of disobedience doesn't mean let's throw out the baby with the bathwater and give up on obeying anything, and I'll just try to live somehow. No. We confess earlier, we heard. We confess our sin, get back up, dust ourselves off because of the grace of God, and we re-engage and set forth to continue to obey. We try to obey every day becomes our goal to obey the Lord and to please him. Let's not be confused on the matter whatsoever. Now, we also need to learn to apply the gospel to every form of wrong religion because the world is filled with it. We've heard what right religion is. It's being saved and then obedience, essentially. But we need to learn, as Paul is doing here, to apply the gospel to wrong religion because we're completely surrounded by it. And a lot of the wrong religion is in the church. I don't know how this happens, but it does. Health and wealth, what do you want to call it? We need to learn to apply the gospel to every form of wrong religion. The gospel is the only antidote for wrong religion. Now remember this, if you will. Right religion always begins with Christ and what he has done and what he commands it is only through Christ that we can worship, serve, and obey God rightly in our religion. The absence now, now remember, that's an important thing. It begins with Christ, then action. Christ, Christ's action, then our action. So we must understand that order. Never forget that. The absence of Christ in their religion was the Athenians' main problem. Christ was not the person of focus or the person of adoration in their religion. And consequently, this led them down some pretty dramatic, incredible paths. Uh, they, 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 you know, they, they concocted and created this behemoth of religion. Christ had nothing to do. He wasn't in it anywhere. But we must remember, too, as we engage those who are religious and as we engage our culture, which is very Athenian, we must remember what Paul did here at the beginning and onset of our passage and study. He addressed those who were lost and engaged in wrong religion very graciously and with much respect despite their folly. And we must learn to do the same in our community and in our world with those who practice wrong religion. Now let's look at 23 because this is really where the sermon begins to take shape. He's kind of launched it by pointing out that they're highly religious and Paul wants them to understand what right religion is. He says, for as I, and he's kind of still building a case, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I love the Apostle Paul's perceptiveness. As he moved through the streets and shopping district of Athens, he made a mental note of his surroundings. He was very perceptive. He didn't just, well, I got to get from point A to point B and didn't look around and acknowledge his surroundings and evaluate what was going on. The man walked through the streets looking intently at things and, and the objects of their worship. And, and just he, he really took time to do this. He was very interested in what was going on. And I think the reason why he was so perceptive and in tune with what was happening was because he was thinking to himself, if I'm afforded the opportunity by the good grace of God to proclaim the gospel, I'm going to need to be able to communicate in such a way that they understand. 
He gathered information for that very purpose, that if he was afforded the opportunity, man, he would, this would be his segue into the gospel. He, Paul wanted to understand the context of that culture. Understanding the context is essential to preaching the gospel effectively. For instance, if I were to preach the gospel in a remote village in Africa, my preaching would be much more effective. The gospel would be presented in a much more effective way if I drew from the villagers' surroundings, culture, and experiences and then began to apply the gospel to those things, right? What good would it do for me to go into a Serengeti village and start proclaiming some American ideal of the gospel in a culture where they have no concept of what America is? It would make no sense to them. He's talking about buildings. He's talking about buildings. What's a building? What's he talking about? Consumerism. Have you seen my hut? I'm not much of a consumer. I've got a giraffe skin pelt on the floor and I've got spears, you know? I mean, it would make no sense to bring American culture into Serengeti culture, right? And yet, the church is doing that today and bringing in health and wealth and, oh. And, and, and people are subscribing themselves to it like crazy because they have nothing and they want stuff. Uh, they actually want to be Americans. I, I don't know about you, but at 44 years old and in the faith as long as I have, I, I think there's never been a time in my life where I've not really wanted to be, un, you know, not an American. But right now I'm really disenfranchised about living here and being under this government and the you know, the oppression in these things. I, I don't think that I would go to a foreign country. If, if God blessed me with a trip to Ireland, if I'd go around saying, I'm from America. The first thing they'd say is, you have pathetic beer there. You know, if I were in Ireland. And we have pathetic other things. But is, can we boast about that anymore? And so culture, context is highly important. I, I wouldn't go into a village and do this. I would want to know those surroundings. Jesus assessed his surroundings and contextualized when he taught. Uh, you never have to change the truth, but you might, the setting is different, so you have to apply the truth in that setting. You think of some of Jesus' sermons, you think of the, the region by which he preached in most of the time, Galilee, where he was a tremendous amount of time, Judea too, but Galilee hosted the rich farmlands of Israel. You know, it was the central valley of Israel, literally. The rich farmlands were there. And, and Jesus knew this and saw this and, and used farming examples in his parables like the sower and the seeds. What is Jesus doing? He's bringing the gospel into their context so they can understand it. You don't talk about buildings in Galilee. You talk about buildings in Jerusalem because that's a major city. Different context, different way to approach the truth and gospel. The truth never changes, but our way of presenting it might. Go back and reread the sermons of Jesus. You will find that he did this over and over and over. And this is exactly what Paul was doing here. And this is exactly what any uh, missionary needs to do if they're going to be effective. You have to learn the language, learn the culture before you go. So often they show up, they know nothing, they try to learn while they're there, and it's a mess. And the same could be said about us, because aren't we all missionaries? We're missionaries called to this area. We're missionaries here. We must know and understand our culture very well and what it's about and what its hang-ups are. And we must present the gospel and address those hang-ups and those hot topics and those subjects. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He assessed his surroundings and perceived that the Athenians were extraordinarily religious. He took note of this and then was And when he was afforded with the opportunity to preach the gospel, he drew upon their own example. He used their context to begin his sermon. He even referenced one of their altars, the empty one, the altar of the unknown God. See, if he hadn't have been perceptive and intentional with why he was in Athens, he wouldn't have picked up on these things. And they would have impacted, not having this knowledge would have impacted his preaching, but he was perceptive. He uses this thing as an example. The Athenians were insanely religious to the point that they did not want to accidentally leave out a god from their worship if there was one out there that they missed. And so they dedicated an empty altar to that god just in case. We've got 162 of them. There could be 163. So let's just make one altar for a God who could be out there because we certainly wouldn't want to take him off. Incredibly, 
the God they were uncertain of, the God that was addressed to this unknown God, was the one true God. The one God they did not know was the Father through Jesus Christ. And this gave Paul the most amazing opportunity to proclaim the absent God as the one true living God. Isn't that amazing? This is exactly what he set forth to do. You know, in their particular religion, there was no true benefit to it. There was no true blessing, no salvation. You think of all these altars and all of this worship and adoration and money being spent and service to these gods, and it was just really at a level that I don't think the world has ever seen since. It kind of breaks your heart to think about it, that it was all vain, doesn't it? All of that worship, all of that resource, all of those shrines, all of those altars, even one to the unknown God, all of this action, 24-hour action going on, all for nothing. Kind of breaks your heart when you think about that. All of that effort for nothing. All of that devotion with hell as the final destination. And how many people are there in the world today that are doing the same thing? They have given themselves to a God or gods that will and can never, will never and can never save them. See, this is what Paul saw too. You remember when he was angry? I think he was also filled with remorse and sorrow. That part of his anger subsided and it, and it gave way to compassion he walked around and saw an altar to an unknown God. You see all these altars, that'd be one thing. And then you see one, like, man, they're so religious, they've got a God that they're not sure of, and they want to make sure to honor him. Wouldn't that break your heart? Wouldn't that cause you to want to proclaim the gospel all the more, that so that maybe God would miraculously save and illuminate some of these people here, that they might know the true God and be able to jettison all that just junk that's worthless? And taking up all their time and resource and money that pays no dividends whatsoever. This, is, this gives us all the more reason when we acknowledge and look at our culture. When we are perceptive and we look at it and all the gods that it gives itself to of self and consumerism and all of these things. There are a zillion gods in our culture. And, and if we know the culture, we should proclaim the gospel against those gods and call people to repent. Call them to new life in Christ. Paul was completely aware of the Athenian situation from the start. And then what do we see in the text? He sees the opportunity to use the unknown God to proclaim the one true God. If we were to paraphrase verses 22 to 23, they might sound something like this. Men of Athens, you appear to be very religious. You have even dedicated an altar to a God you might have missed. I am now going to proclaim to you uh, the one. Uh, I am now going to proclaim to you the God whom belongs in that slot or is high above it, the one that you've missed, the God that is the one true God who you consider the unknown God. What, a, what an awesome opportunity Paul seized here. 24, the God who made, here's where he begins to really hammer it down, the God who made the world. He says, okay, the unknown God, let's go with this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is an amazing. Opening it up by saying, okay, I'm going to take their religion and their example and I'm going to, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach the, living, the true living God through this. And he opens up with this incredible, incredible statement. This particular 24 and 25, that little passage is one of the most amazing declarations of God in all of Scripture. It's just compacted down into two verses, and it is one of the greatest descriptions of who God is. God declared it, and think, or think of this, Paul, rather, declared it this. He said these things before the high court of Athens in all boldness. Paul proclaimed in this little passage, it's packed into this, five important characteristics about God. Okay, this statement has five important characteristics in it that we do not want to miss and that were targeted right towards his audience and the religion they were engaged in. This was a very gutsy move by Paul. 24 and 25 uh, would have been uh, like Jesus saying, I am, and got him killed, except these people are 
uh, did not understand these things. But this was the kind of statement that would probably get a believer put to death in a highly religious culture that had a zillion gods and all these things. Let's talk about these things. Number one, Paul said that basically God is creator. Okay, your unknown God here, let me proclaim to you who this God is. He is the creator God. He said it like this at 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Now this was an absolute assault against the Epicureans and Stoics who were part of the group there, congregation if you will. The Epicureans rejected the notion of a creator God because they believed that all matter was eternal if all matter is eternal, then it could not have been created by a creator, right? It's always existed. The Stoics were pantheists who believed that God was in everything. God is in the rocks. God is in the stars. God is in the dirt. God is in the water. God is in animals. God is in us. All things make up God. And since God can't create himself, he couldn't have created the world and everything in it. All of it is God. How could God create it himself? These were the two guiding philosophies in this culture. And so Paul begins by saying the God who made everything. Well, wait a minute. To the Epicureans, everything was eternal. It had never been made. So Paul is saying, no. Pretty awesome. Paul's gutsy. He's bold. Right? He don't play games. Of course, if he would have been presenting this truth to a Christian... In today's church, the today's church Christian would have argued with him and, well, number two, God is Lord of heaven and earth. This is what he says. He says, being Lord of heaven and earth. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary says this of this text. Lord in English is the rendering of the Hebrew Adonai or of the Greek Kyrios. The Hebrew Yahweh is usually rendered Lord. God's rule and authority as Lord rests ultimately upon his creation and ownership of all things and all people. So he talks about God as the creator, but then he talks about God as the owner of it all and the sovereign over it all. God is the creator and it all belongs to him, is what Paul says. He emphasized by saying, Lord, you're God's total supremacy over nature and, and over people. Pretty amazing statement, he says here, by calling him Lord. Now, you know, Paul said two things here. He boldly declared God as the creator or the creator God and also as the sovereign Lord over his creation. This is how he begins this marvelous sermon. Those who listening to him would have been saying this. Did this babbler just declare the unknown God as higher than our ideas, philosophies, religion, idols, gods, and daily affairs? Because to say Lord is exactly what that means. Curios, above all. Wait a minute, sir. You just said the unknown God, the one we don't know. You've seen how religious we are. We get it. Nobody gets it like we do. You're saying that the empty hole... The God that belongs there is above all of them? And Paul said, yep. Babbler, fool, are you nuts? Three, God cannot be contained. He said it like this, does not live. God does not live in temples made by man. This was another torpedo through their beliefs. Fire one, shoom, he sank my battleship. Their gods were man-made statues and carvings that were placed in shrines. But Paul says the unknown God, the true God, doesn't reside in temples made by man. He cannot be contained or restricted to a place or location. He is omnipresent is essentially what he's saying. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Paul basically said, God isn't a statue in one of your temples. You see, he's completely destructing, uh, deconstructing their religion here. Very boldly, too. For, this is fantastic. God is not dependent upon human beings. And he says it like this, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Well, if I don't get people to do something for me, I have no arms and legs, I can't do much. 
As I stated last week, the Athenians had over 72,000 statues in the city which depicted their gods. How much service went into keeping all those idol gods looking pretty and presentable? If the servants that maintain those things did not maintain those things and those statues all over, they would certainly dilapidate. And what about all the time spent in worship of those gods and those idols all over? All the prayers, songs, and sacrifices that were made in service to them. If those things ceased, surely those idol gods would become forgotten. See, Paul says, in effect, the unknown God, the one true God, is unlike your gods because he has not depended upon people. He is not served by human hands as though they needed anything. These little idols that were supposedly their gods, if people stopped taking care of them, what would they do? And he's saying, let me show you how the unknown God is completely opposite to that. He's not, he doesn't reside in temples. He's not maintained by your hands and by your craftsmen. He doesn't even have to have your worship or any of those things. He's completely self-sufficient. But not only does he say that, number five, human beings are dependent upon God for life, breath, and everything. He says it like this, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, Paul juxtaposed God's lack of dependence on us with our utter and absolute dependence on him right here. The Athenian gods were literally dependent upon the Athenians because they had been created by the Athenians. <laughs> if the Athenians stopped maintaining and serving their gods, they would turn to dust and disappear. In contrast, Paul says, in effect, the true God is the opposite, for he is the giver of life, breath, and everything. In other words, he is not dependent on us, but we are dependent on him. Now, this would have been a shocking statement along with the others to Paul's hearers. They would have thought to themselves, our entire existence, everything, all that we are and have and breathe and live and move is dependent upon the unknown God, the whole, not all the other ones. What about our other gods? What do we do? Our gods have names and, and faces and, and duties. Surely they are more important than the unknown God. Are you saying that they are nothing? Paul is saying they are nothing. They are nothing. Now the five characteristic, characteristics Paul gave are supported by a multitude of passages in the Bible. The Bible makes it lucidly clear. It makes this truth lucidly clear that these truths, that God is creator, that God is Lord of heaven and earth, that he is not bound to temples or shrines, not dependent on us, and that he is the giver of life, breath, and everything. These truths about God are foundational to our faith. They are essential. Our faith begins with these truths. We do not believe in evolution. We do not believe that everything came from nothing. This is insanity. It's lunacy to think. We believe in a creator and we believe that he is sovereign over his creation. He is Lord and that he does not reside in man-made temples but in heaven and in the hearts of his people. And he is, that he is not dependent on us but that we are completely and entirely dependent on him. We agree with Paul who said a little later in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Last verse, 26, and he made from every, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Paul has proclaimed the unknown God as the one true God who created and sustains all things. He now proclaims God as the creator of all people and nations. This too would have been shocking for a couple of reasons. In Greek religion, all of these acts of creating were divided amongst their gods. This God did this, this God does that, this God does these things, and so on. But Paul said that the one true God 
did it all. He created all things and all people and all nations. This was a, another way uh, for, uh, Paul actually dismissed their gods and religion. Now, secondly, to say that uh, all men came from one man, Adam, is to say that all men are created equal. Because that's precisely what he says. And all were made from one man. Every nation came from one man. It's a reference to Adam. Now this, too, what Paul said here, is a total bomb blast against the national pride of the Greeks who believed that all non-Greeks were subservient barbarians. All men are created equal in God's eyes. That's a fact. That's a biblical fact. And to think that a barbarian or a Hispanic or someone of some eth other ethnic background is subservient or below you because you're Anglo is a direct insult to the creator God who has created all men equal. This was a slap in the face of these philosophers and the Areopagites who believed that the Greeks, the Athenians, were above all by far, that every other group was under them and a barbarian. This verse also, it also addresses the modern notion of evolution. According to verse 26, evolution cannot be true. Verse 26 affirms Genesis 1, 26 through 27, which says that God made man in his own image. Evolution says there is no God, no creation, no purpose, no intrinsic value, no intrinsic dignity, no divinely ordained moral standards, no sin, no gospel, no hope, and no heaven. Roger Gallup called Darwinian evolution the greatest deception in modern history. I think we would agree. And the question becomes for us, do we believe the scriptures or Darwin's theory or in some other philosophy or religion? What you believe about the universe, what you believe about God, what you believe about the origin of man will profoundly affect your life. It will profoundly affect your worldview. It will form your worldview. It will profoundly affect your future. Now this was without a doubt the dilemma of the Athenians. They were exceedingly off course in their understanding of reality. But by the grace of God, the Apostle Paul was there to reason from the scriptures and to proclaim the gospel that some might become illuminated and saved. God is giving that same grace here and now and wherever else the gospel is proclaimed. Paul also, lastly getting towards the end here, Paul also declared the sovereignty of God over his created beings. He said that God has determined how long men will live and where they will live. This too came as a shock to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers because they did not believe that the gods controlled or intervened in human affairs. Kind of heard about that a little earlier today. Their belief was that if the gods existed, surely they were out in the universe somewhere playing chess and sipping cuvassier while the world turned and turned and turned. That they had nothing to do with what was going on. That was their belief. They had images and depictions of their gods, but they believed that that was as close as they could get to them. I can stand in front of this block of stone I'm drawing unto God. Last statement, it has become quite obvious that Paul was attempting to bring the Athenian context into the larger context of creation. At this point in his presentation, he wanted his listeners to know that there exists a creator God who is Lord over heaven and earth and that the Athenians were created beings who were subject to him. These fundamental truths were critical to their ability to comprehend the gospel. Why? Because the gospel would make no sense to the Athenians if they remained ignorant of God, ignorant of creation, and ignorant of the fall of man. This is why Paul started with creation and God. They won't understand the gospel if they don't believe there's a God who holds them accountable. I hope you will uh, join us in the weeks to come as we continue, Lord willing, to expound this incredible text. Amen. We have a time of communion right now. Um, so marvel at the word of God always. It's just so incredible. So rich.
I was reading this sermon, the beginning part of it, and said, man, I wish I could preach like that. You know, you look at it, and you just, man, that's, man, this guy knew God. This will be a time of communion where you'll have an opportunity to confess your sin, have an opportunity to remember the finished work of Jesus Christ, have an opportunity to be refreshed by God's grace, and you'll have an opportunity to recommit yourself to obeying the Lord, which is exactly what we're called to do. If we're justified, saved people, we are called and commanded to obey. And it should be our great joy to do it. Father, thank you for this time of communion, Lord. Impress these truths upon our heart. May we know without a shadow of doubt that the unknown God of Greece is the everlasting creator God who sent his son to die in our place, to rise from the grave that we might live. God, you have made yourself known to us. You were unknown to me 13 years ago. And you made yourself known to me through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. I know these folks here thank you for that. May we have a sweet time of communion and fellowship with you, Lord, as we confess, as we remember what Christ did, secured our, secured our justification, our salvation. May we be refreshed by that knowledge and your grace. And may we commit ourselves to obeying you. Maybe that'll mean that we are sharing the gospel with others this week. We live in Athenian culture. There are many gods here. And the one true living God is unknown to the vast multitudes of people here. May our obedience be in that, that we make him known. May we even use Paul's way of preaching here, frame it into the context of creation and redemption. Father, thank you for this time of communion. May we bless you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.